This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he is not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together this morning to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation that allows us to do this. We pray that although there are many forces at work to try to shut down the teaching of your word and the impact of Christianity in this nation, we pray that you would continue to preserve these freedoms for us. We know that all that we have and all that we enjoy comes from you. Father, we continue to pray for the security and safety of our nation, for the wisdom and leadership of our our president and civilian and military authorities. We pray that you'd guide and direct them in their decision-making. Ultimately, we know that the security of our nation resides in your hands. Father, we also pray for us as believers that we might be a solid witness and testimony before angels and before men of your grace, that we might not take lightly what we have been given in your word, but that we might uh, take this as a serious responsibility as members of the royal family of God to grow and mature as believers and to advance to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us as we study your word today. Give us a greater appreciation of your word and your plan for history and your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue this morning where we left off last Sunday morning. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. So we'll just have a little review. 1 7 reads, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Literally, it's a definite article in the Greek. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, last time we addressed four or four questions related to this verse. First of all, what is the meaning of coming? Is this the second coming or the rapture? You see, in God's plan, there are two phases to the second coming. We currently live in the church age following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was on the earth for another 40 days until he ascended uh, just prior to the day of Pentecost. He ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father on 
the Father's throne. And we did a study of this several weeks ago. And I want to remind you again that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, when Jesus is talking to the overcomers, He says, To the one who overcomes, I will grant to sit with Me on My throne, even as I overcame and sat on My Father's throne. So in that verse it tells us that He is not currently sitting on His own throne, but with His Father. This is called the session of Jesus Christ. This is primarily the function of His high priesthood. Now, Jesus was born prophet, priest, and king. His ministry as a prophet is primarily His first advent ministry. Uh, That does not exclude the others, but He doesn't function primarily in those areas. As high priest, His function as high priest is primarily related to the church. Although uh, we can say that his death on the cross, his sacrifice, is part of that priestly ministry. And in his high priestly prayer in John 17, of course, was related to, to the church. But his primary operation and function as high priest takes place during the session when he is at the right hand of God the Father. He's not on the throne of David. There are some who are teaching that, some spiritualize those promises. He is awaiting the second coming before he is, activates his role as King of Kings and Lord of Lords or as the Davidic King. The church age ends with the rapture. This is phase one in the second coming. The rapture is followed by a seven-year period of great of tribulation known as the time of Jacob's wrath. Also, is Daniel's uh, 70th week from Daniel chapter 9. The seven-year tribulation ends with the second coming of Christ at when He comes down to the earth and destroys the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet and casts them into the uh, lake of fire and binds Satan and establishes His 1,000-year rule and reign on the earth. So we ask the question, what coming is this? When he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. It is a coming uh, at the second coming, not the rapture. He is coming with the clouds. And that was the second thing that we addressed was what is the meaning of clouds? He is coming with the clouds. And this is often associated in the, in the Old Testament with God's glory, His Shekinah glory, His presence. Shekinah means the dwelling presence of God and is often indicated through either clouds or the pillar of fire uh, as His as manifestation or localized manifestation of His glory. And so that is what is referred to. It's not coming in the clouds, which is what we have in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, which is what takes place at the rapture. The rapture, He comes in the clouds. At the uh, second coming, He comes with the clouds. And then we're told, Every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And I pointed out that this has become a, a debated text now in relation to the issue of preterism. And we pointed out that there are basically three broad views of how to interpret Bible prophecy. The first view is what we'll call preter, what is called preterism. The second is called historicism. And the third is called futurism. And if you just think in terms of, of past, 
present and future, then you have that down. Don't let the, that technical language confuse you. Preterism is from a Latin word, preteritus, which means that which has gone by or past. So preterism holds that the tribulation prophecies occur in the first century, that is, in the past. So if you think about it as past, present, and future, preterism means it's already happened. Jesus came back in the cl- with the clouds, and their interpretation of clouds is that this is judgment. And while there are a couple of passages that associate the clouds with the appearance of uh, Christ with judgment, we went through a number of passages last time where I pointed out that Jesus Christ is often... The second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, is often accompanied by clouds in the Old Testament because this is a manifestation of His of His glory. It's true also in the book of of Revelation. Revelation we have passages such as Revelation eleven twelve, Revelation fourteen fourteen, Revelation fourteen fifteen, or excuse me, just Revelation fourteen fourteen through sixteen all associate clouds with Jesus Christ. He said that He would come on the clouds of heaven with power and glory in Matthew 24:30, and that He would come on the clouds of heaven in Matthew 26:64. In the Old Testament, we saw that clouds were often associated with the presence of God. For example, Exodus 13:21, God went before the children of Israel uh, with a pillar of cloud by day and a uh, pillar of fire at night. When Moses went to meet with God on the on Mount Sinai, then the, the mountain was covered with clouds for six days. Other passages, such as Isaiah 26, uh, 21, excuse me, uh, Isaiah 30, 27, Joel 2, 1 and 2, also associate uh, clouds with the judgment, but the judgment there is the coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation when He comes as a judge. And then Zephaniah 1, 14 and 15 as well. So when we read here in Revelation 1, 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. That imagery ties together numerous passages in both the Old and New Testament indicating the return of Jesus Christ in judgment to destroy the enemies of Israel, to redeem Israel, and to establish His kingdom at the second coming. Every eye will see Him refers to every eye in the world. All mankind will see Him and be aware of His presence. Even they who pierced Him, that's a reference to uh, Zechariah, Chapter 10, verse 12, which talks about the fact that the Jews will pierce him, a prophecy related uh, to the first advent and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And that passage itself talks about the second coming, where God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me... Whom they pierced. So this is that reference. It is talking about the Jews here, and uh, the, every eye is the whole world, even the ascensive use of Kai, even they 
who pierced him, that is, the Jews will look on him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And the word that is translated tribes here is the Greek word phulos, P-H-U-L-O-S, phulos, which means tribes. But when you go back and you look at how this, this phrase is used in the Old Testament, it's normally translated families of the earth, and you don't look at just the word tribes or just the word uh, families. This is one of those important aspects of word studies that really developed with the use of computers, and that is doing phrase studies. So not, sometimes a word can have several different nuances, but you have to look at how it's used in phrase, and that wasn't always easy to do phrase searches when you had uh, concordances and had to do it the, the old-fashioned way, and uh, you'd have to look up a word and then try to find how, how it was used in association with another word. So the term tribes of the earth, using the phrase phulos, is a phrase that's taken right out of the Greek Septuagint. Now, the Greek Septuagint was the, the Jewish translation of the Old Testament that was made in roughly the first or roughly second and third century B.C., it's sometimes abbreviated LXX based on the legend that 70 rabbis translated the Pentateuch in 70 days. And uh, I don't think that's, an, that's completely accurate, but that's the legend. So they called it uh, the Septuagint, meaning the 70, 70 days. So that uses the word phulos, and it's a translation of the Greek, I mean of the Hebrew word, uh, Mishpat, which means, uh, which is often translated families in the Old Testament. So when you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about the promise that Abraham's seed will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that is translated in the Greek with this word phulos. So we traced that through last time that there were numerous passages in the Old Testament that took this phrase Fulos, uh, our, our Mishpat team, showing that um, that this phrase, as it's used in the Old Testament, talked about Gentiles, not not Jews. And the reason I say that is because if we were to take the time, I don't want to do it again this morning. Go back to Revelation 12. I mean, excuse me, Zechariah 12, 10 and following. Zechariah 10:12 talks about the the, the uh, Jesus being pierced. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Following that, if you look at it in context, it mentions different segments of Jewish society that will mourn. Now, what has happened is the preterists come along, and they look at Revelation 1:7, where it says all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, and they say, see. Tribes of the earth here, you should translate the uh, word gase, which is translated earth, is land. All the tribes of the land will mourn be, because of him. That is just Jews. Now, think about that. That translation changes the meaning. All of a sudden, if, it's tr- if it means all the tribes of the land, then you could say, yeah, I can see where this coming is local. It's just related to Jews. And so they, they play with it and interpret it that way. But when you realize that tribes of the earth 
is a phrase that when it's that, that uh, always translates this Old Testament phrase, families of the earth. You realize that's a technical term for Gentiles. Tribes of the earth always refers to Gentiles. Therefore, this coming in Revelation 1-7 isn't a localized coming. Now, that's important because the preterists claim that Jesus returned in a local coming in in 70 A.D., a coming in judgment on Israel, and that that's what, they ref- that's what this passage refers to, as well as the passage in Matthew 24, that this was just a localized, non-personal uh, coming of Jesus in judgment. And where they go with that is to translate Matthew 24, and Revel- uh, most of Revelation, or to interpret those passages, rather, as... Uh, having taken place in 70 A.D. Now, isn't it sad that we have to spend time correcting error like this? Uh, But that's the way it is. We live in an age when there's more and more uh, heresy coming up and there's more and more diversity coming up. I've mentioned this many times from the pulpit. I remember just 30 years ago when I went to Dallas Seminary, Evangelicalism, even though there were a variety of opinions, let's say there were, and it was fragmented and divided on some things, it's, it's fragmented and divided a hundred times more today than it was just 30 years ago. And interpretations that had been around before, such as preterism and postmillennialism, were basically dead. In fact, you go back and you read some of the writings on prophecy in the 30s and 40s and 50s, books by Harry Ironside, Lewis Berry Chafer, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, others. They would comment, or Charles Feinberg, comment that postmillennialism is dead. Nobody believes that anymore. Well, now it's made a comeback, and it's spawned preterism. Preterism is not new either. But these ideas are coming back, and it just confuses people, especially when... You get out there uh, and you listen to people on the radio and they sound good on topics such as the glory of God, the holiness of God, and you begin to give them some level of credibility. And next thing you know, they're off into preterism. And it just confuses people. So we have to be well-armed and understand the different positions that are out there so they don't rear their ugly head and cause problems here at Preston City Bible Church. Just like some years ago, I think, somebody had a problem with pre-tribulationism and that became an issue and caused some problems. So we have to teach to these uh, different exacts and spasms that come along to make sure we're well grounded in the Word. So Revelation 1-7 is a summary description of what takes place at the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is the which foreshadows where the book of Revelation is headed. Behold, he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, is coming with the clouds, and every eye, every Gentile eye will see him, or every eye on the earth will see him, even they who pierced him, that is, Jews who will be regenerate at the second coming of Christ. And one time I made the comment when we were teaching through, I think it was, Dan, it was either Daniel or Dispensations and, and a Covenant series, 
I said, at the end of the tribulation, all the Jews will be saved. And I had some people out there, some tapers say, how, how can you say every Jew will be saved? That violates volition. No, it doesn't. Read the text. Matthew 24, Jesus said, if you're going to survive, you've got to flee to the mountains. Well, only the Jews that are positive are going to respond. They're going to flee to the mountains. The rest of the Jews are going to die. They're going to be killed in, the fin- in those final judgments related to Armageddon. So the Jews that are positive are going to flee. They're going to flee south uh, east into the desert, south of modern Petra, in the area of Basra, not the Basra in Connecticut. And they will, at that point, call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. In the last verse of Matthew 23, Jesus said He would not come back until they said, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is a reference to that to the uh, final turning of Israel, those that small remnant, and it will not be large, that small remnant that listens to what Jesus said to flee to the mountains, they will be saved. I believe that almost all the other Jews, probably all the other Jews, all the unbelieving Jews will be killed in those last terrible judgments and battles of the tribulation period. So, Revelation 1-7, Every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him, and that will be the saved remnant. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. At the end of the tribulation, there will be a time of true mourning, not just emotion, but true mourning over the rejection of Jesus as Messiah at the first advent. And then the verse closes with the statement, Even so, Amen. And this last phrase is really just the Greek word nai, N-A-I, nai, means yes. And it has that idea of indeed or or, or truly. Yes, it has the idea of certainty. And then the last word is amen, which is a transliteration, came over into Greek, from a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew verb aman means to believe. And it was a statement of certainty, a statement of that you validated something. Yes, certainly, I believe it, it, it is so. And so this word is used, uh, depends on which textual variant you take, some eight or nine times in Revelation. And I think I've given no, three different numbers in the last three weeks. Um, it depends on, uh, a couple, I think one is a textual problem. It's actually eight, I believe, in Revelation. And it has that idea of certainty. The Hebrew verb from which it comes is used to refer to the foundation of a pillar, that which is immovable, steadfast, that which is certain. So it came to be used as an idiom for agreeing and with a statement or validating a statement. And people in churches would use that. Now, today we have a lot of Christians just overuse the term. And once you start overusing any word, then it loses its semantic value. And it just becomes a statement. And I'll often be around groups and, and I'll hear preachers and about every third word is amen or every third paragraph they say, amen, amen. And, well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't have any value anymore. It's just meaningless verbiage. And we have to watch that. 
in, in anything. I mean, if you, if you write, you have to be careful not to use words too often because they begin to, to lose their value. They just are, become empty words. So there's nothing wrong with using it, but it's used, must be used sparingly where it has meaning and significance. You know, some people might say, well, look at how many times Amen is used in Revelation. Yeah, but look how many times it's not used in other books compared to how some people utilize it in their Christian language. Well, what happens here is there's a break. This is a stylistic break in what has been going on in these first seven verses, and then verse 8 is going to shift the focus to the glory of Jesus, our glory of God, and His control of history. But before we get there, I want to go back and finish up what we were concluding with last time, and that is the contrast between the rapture and the second coming. The contrast between the rapture and the second coming that there are certain distinctives in what happens and what is accomplished in these two events. I think we made it through about the first eight the last time. Well, I'm going to slow down. I was running out of time, so we ran through them quickly. And now we'll cover, I believe there are 15. We'll cover all of them this morning. First of all, at the rapture, there is a translation of all believers. They are translated. They receive their... Uh, physical resurrection body. It's not mortal, but it's physical. Not in the same, or it's not limited in the same way it is now, but it is a, a physical body with different properties than what we have today. That's what we mean by translation. They are changed. At the second coming, there's no translation at all. Nobody receives a resurrection body at the second coming. Second contrast, at the rapture, the translated saints go to heaven. But at the second coming, translated saints return to the earth. Where is Jesus headed when he comes back at the second coming? It's to the earth. As he's coming down, he's headed straight to the earth to defeat the enemies of Israel. And there are several stages to the second coming, and his final stop is at the Mount of Olives. But at the rapture, he's going to take us to heaven. John 14, he says that he is going to go and prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. So that's heaven, isn't it? That's not the earth. So that's an indication that when he returns for us, we go to heaven, not to the earth. Third contrast. At the rapture, there's no, the earth is not judged. In the rapture passages, there's no mention of a judgment on the earth, simply the removal of believers from planet earth. Yet at the second coming, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to defeat the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet. He's going to defeat Satan. He will judge the earth, and he will establish his righteous kingdom. So point number three, earth is not judged at the rapture, but at the second coming, the earth is judged and righteousness is established. Fourth, the rapture is imminent. That means it can happen at any moment. doesn't mean it's soon. 
It means it can happen at any moment. In other words, there are no signs that must be fulfilled. It is a signless event. You don't look around and say, hmm, there's, Israel is in the land. There are uh, atomic weapons available now. There's movements in Israel to establish the, uh, a, a, another temple. So the rapture must be soon. Some of you say, well, wait a minute, I thought that's what you said. No, see, those are signs of the tribulation. And my point is that if there are certain signs related to the tribulation that are showing up, then that may suggest that the rapture is soon. But the rapture is not tied to the fulfillment of any sign per se. So we have to distinguish between the fact that there may be certain prophecies fulfilled in the church age but they are related to what's going to happen right after the rapture. They don't have anything to do with the church age. They don't mean the, the, the rapture is any closer. They don't have anything to do with the spiritual life. They're actually just the, the foreshadowings, the foretasting, the stage setting for what will take place right after the rapture. Now, the Old Testament predicts that there will be two returns of Israel to the land, one in unbelief, and one in belief. And what we're seeing today is a return in unbelief. Now, it doesn't say that there will be many returns in unbelief. There will be one return in unbelief. And this is why many believe that this return, this nation that is established today, is not going to disappear. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, God can come along and wipe out the nation uh, this year and, and the rapture may not occur for a thousand more years. I don't think that'll happen. That's not what is seen in the Old Testament where there are two returns, one in unbelief. Well, this is clearly a return in unbelief. So that doesn't mean the rapture is any closer. It does indicate that the stage is clearly being set For those early events in Israel, there must be a nation, Israel, at the beginning of the tribulation. Why? Because the Antichrist is going to sign a peace treaty with the nation Israel. So it only follows that if it's not necessary for there to be a nation Israel before the rapture, but if there is a nation Israel established, then it seems to suggest that these events may be soon. But remember, there's a difference between imminent and soon. Imminent means at any moment. Whereas the second coming follows predicted signs. The second coming can't happen until the tribulation takes place. It can't happen until the Antichrist unites a ten-nation confederacy. It can't happen until all of these other events in, in, uh, in Revelation transpire. So if they haven't happened yet, then you know the tr- the Second coming is at least seven years away. But we are not to look for these other things. See, if you have, if you have various signs, what do you look for the second coming of Christ? What are you going to look for first? His return or the sign? You're going to look for the sign. But see, we are not to look for the sign. We're to look for the blessed hope and return of our Lord. Because that's the next thing that's going to happen. So don't worry about trying to identify the Antichrist or trying to figure out what events in 
contemporary uh, foreign policy might relate to the second coming of Christ, we're not to worry about that. Some, the Antichrist won't be revealed until after the rapture. We are to look for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifth point, rapture is not predicted in the Old Testament. Why is that? Rapture pertains to the church. Church isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. If the rapture had been mentioned, the church would have had to have been mentioned. If the church were mentioned, the Jews would know that they were going to be temporarily displaced in history for a while. That would have indicated that they were going to reject the Messiah. See, they had a real choice to accept or reject the Messiah, so there's no mention of what plan B was going to be. Whereas the second coming is predicted often in the Old Testament. Sixth, the rapture is for believers only. It is, a, in a sense, a secret rapture. Jesus Christ comes in the clouds, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and all we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Believers only. But the second coming is, affects all mankind. There's going to be a judgment at that time for all those who survived the tribulation, the sheep and goat judgment. The sheep are believers who survive and go into the kingdom, and the goats, and this is for Gentiles, the goats are the unbelievers who will be removed from the planet. And then Jesus Christ will establish his kingdom. It's physical. The kingdom is real. It will affect all of mankind. So the sixth point, the rapture is for believers only. Second coming affects all mankind. Seventh, the rapture takes place before the day of wrath. See, the tribulation period is described as the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of Satan, and the wrath of God. So everybody is, gets, gets into the act and during the tribulation. But the rapture is prior to that. The second coming, though, ends the day of wrath. It ends the judgment. It wraps it all up. Rapture comes first, then the judgment, judgments of the tribulation, concluding with the second coming. Eighth point, at the rapture there's no reference to Satan. Rapture passages never mention Satan. He is not important in relationship to the rapture. However, at the second coming, Satan is defeated and he is bound for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, about the first six verses. Satan is bound at the second coming. Ninth point. Christ comes for His own at the rapture. He comes for the church in the clouds. For His own. But at the second coming, He comes with His own. He comes for His bride at the rapture. He comes with His bride at the second coming. Because, you see, there has, there's a marriage supper of the Lamb. That's another reason that the church can't be raptured at the tribulation is because the marriage feast of the Lamb has to take place. And if He just picks us up on His way down, there's no time, as we'll see, for the judgment seat of Christ or the marriage supper of the Lamb. The rapture, point number 10, the rapture takes place. Christ comes in the clouds at the second coming, Christ comes to the earth. He, he comes with the clouds to the earth. Rapture, He comes in the clouds. Second coming, Christ comes with the clouds to the earth.
At the rapture, point number 11, Christ claims His bride and He comes with His bride at the second coming. Claims His bride, He comes for His bride at the rapture, with His bride at the second coming. At the rapture, only His own will see Him. Only believers will see Him. Remember, this is related to the earlier point that it's only for believers. Only believers will see Him. But at the second coming, based on the passage we see here in Revelation 1-7, every eye shall see Him. But the rapture is invisible to unbelievers. The second coming is visible to all. Thirteenth, after the rapture, the tribulation begins. Not immediately. There's some lapse there. We don't know how long that will be. Some people think it's just a few days. There are others who think it may be as long as three and a half years. And that's based on how they understand uh, Ezekiel 48 and 49 and the invasion of Gog and Magog. You see, there are some people who take that as happening before the tribulation and that the land has to be cleaned up before uh, before the tribulation can begin. So they'll have as much as three and a half years. Now, I don't agree with that position. I think the Gog and Magog invasion is the first stage of the Battle of Armageddon. But there, there's a lot of debate over this, and I frank, frankly, I, I hold probably hold my position on that with l- less conviction than, than, than most things. I, th- I don't think it's that clear in the Scripture. I, I have problems with every view, but I think that the, pro- the, pro- the view with the least problems is that the Gog and Magog invasion takes place at the end of the uh, tribulation, at the beginning of the, ba- the campaign for Armageddon. However, I do think there's a gap. There's something that happens. When the, think about it. When the rapture occurs, all believers are going to be taken off the earth. If that were to happen today, this country would be in chaos. There are other areas in the world that would, that would consequently be in chaos. If you were to take out all the believers that are involved as CEOs and, and uh, politicians and senators and congressmen and and military leaders in this country, that would have a tremendous impact on the economy. And that would ricochet and reverberate throughout the entire world. I think that that chaos is what's going to lead to the choice of a one-man government under the Antichrist is to try to restore order after after the rapture. Now, that's going to take some time. The tribulation period itself does not begin until the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. So some time is going to go by between the rapture and the signing of that peace treaty. That's what kicks off the the time clock for the seven-year tribulation. That could be a few weeks, could be a few months, it could be a couple of years. But there are other transition periods in other dispensations. So this isn't something unusual. The other transitions are shorter, but clearly there's a transition period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. There's a little bit of a transition between the end of the tribulation, which is the second coming, and the beginning of the messianic kingdom. That's that time differential mentioned in the last chapter of Daniel when when these various judgments are going to take place and the Messiah is going to clean up the land. But the thirteenth point is that the tribulation begins after the rapture. 
the messianic kingdom begins after the second coming. That distinguishes the two. Okay, 13 points. I think I thought it was 15. I just remembered wrong. Revelation 1.7 Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. That's a break in the text. Then we come to the 8th verse. The 8th verse is a statement. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end is in the King James and New King James, but that's not in the best text. So I have that highlighted in yellow. That should not be counted as in the best text. If you use an NASB and IV, it won't be there, so don't worry about it. Says the Lord God. Now, if you're using, once again, if you're using King James or New King James, it just says the Lord. But God should be there. The better manuscripts that we have found since the Textus Receptus demonstrate that God is there. I've gone over this before, that there are these textual problems in Revelation, uh, more so in Revelation. None of these affect doctrine, but it does affect the reading of the text. Now, if you have a New King James Version, it will highlight these things and put a little asterisk in the text, and then there'll be a note. And the note will, for example, on this verse, says the NU text and the M text omit the beginning and the end. As the new text, NU text, and the M text add God. Now, I'm not going to make textual critics out of you, but I'll tell you something. If both the, the NU text stands for the Nestle Allen and the United Bible Society critical text, And that's based on, as I've said before, that's based on the assumption that the oldest manuscripts are the best. And we have basically four old manuscripts that people put a lot of weight on, and they were 4th century manuscripts discovered down in uh, in Egypt. And one is Vaticanus. It was discovered in the Vatican. Originally came out of that same area in uh, northern Africa. Uh, Vaticanus, uh, Sinaiticus. Uh, Alexandrinus, and then a, another uh, 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 papyrus. These are usually given a lot of weight because they're old. But I keep saying this. It's, it's a flawed statement. Older is better. Because if you have a ninth century copy that's a perfect copy of a 3rd century manuscript that's, that's, that's almost flawless, then that ninth century copy is going to be better than a flawed 4th century copy. So older isn't necessarily better. But that was, that was the idea. And people are awfully impressed by the fact that if three or four of these manuscripts down in uh, Egypt all agree, then that must be the text. Well, what textual critics pretty much agree on is that here in the fourth century, you've got Sinaiticus, and Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus. But they're all probably copies of, we'll just say X, which is a third century document. But what if X is flawed? And over here you've got a ninth century document. Let's say K. I'm not sure if that's the date on K, but let's say we've got an, it's, a, it's a Byzantine text. And it is a... 
faithful copy of a second century manuscript. Why? Then this would be a better copy than this. Well, this gets into a lot of issues, but I'll tell you what. The oldest is better view always shows up and is pretty much the accepted view of the Nestle Island or the UBX, UBS text called abbreviated NU in your New King James notes. And then you have another competing view, which is the majority text view. And that's usually indicated by the letter M. Now that's different from the TR. TR stands for Textus Receptus, or the Received Text. These were approximately eight manuscripts used by Erasmus in the early 16th century as the basis for his uh, Greek New Testament. That was the basis for the King James Version. But what I've pointed out here is that these are the differences between uh, both the NU text and the majority text. Now, the TR... It's sort of a subcategory of the majority text, but it only represented eight manuscripts. So whenever the NU text and the majority text agree against the TR, we can pretty much count the TR out. So in, this, in these two cases, uh, we can have tremendous confidence that in this verse, the phrase, the beginning and the end, which is in the King James and New King James, just is, wasn't in the original, and it is the phrase, the Lord God. Now, this is important for understanding who's speaking here. Okay? I'm not just going through this because it's an interesting little academic exercise. You have to figure out what the text says before you can figure out what the text means. Now, if you have the phrase Alpha and Omega and then the phrase the beginning and the end, that phrase the beginning and the end or first and the last seems to appear to relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, if you're, you're looking at it from that text, you would say, well, this looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you take out the beginning and the end, if that's not there, and if, it, and if you have the phrase Lord God, kurios hatheos, that's a different identification. And then we have the phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we have to look at who is being addressed here. Who's speaking? Rather, not who's being addressed, but who's speaking. Is this God the Father or is this God the Son? And I conclude that this, from my study, that this is God the Father. Remember, verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ which God the Father gave him to show his servants. Now, this introduction covers the first eight verses. You have the, the, the uh, preface in verses 1 through 3, and you have the greeting or salutation in 4 through uh, 7. But this is the, the ultimate revealer, and that is God the Father. And he is referred to in verse 8. This is not Jesus Christ, it's God the Father. Now, how do I say that? Well, first of all, the phrase that is translated Lord God. Who's speaking here? It's the Lord God. Kurios ha theos. Kurios is translated Lord. Ha theos is the word for God. This phrase, kurios ha theos, is used ten times in the New Testament. 
but only one of these is used outside of the book of Revelation. In other words, nine times you find this phrase, kurios hatheos, in the book of Revelation. One times it's outside of the book of Revelation, and that's in Luke one thirty-two, Talking about Jesus, this is the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. He will be great and be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So who's Lord God? It's got to be God the Father. So Luke one thirty-two is clear that the term kurios hatheos refers to God the Father. In other passages in Revelation, this is point number two, it always refers to God the Father. For example, in Revelation 4, verse 8. Now, as you look at these, it would probably be best not to just look at the verse, but we have to look at the context, because the verses alone do not always give us all the information we need. Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings... These are probably uh, seraphim, but there's some debate over that, and we'll get into that when we get to chapter 4. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Oh, now this is a great verse for us, because we're talking about the Lord God, Kyrios Hatheos, who's defined as Almighty and who was and who is and who is to come. Now, is this the Lord Jesus Christ or God the Father? Well, it's, the, it's God the Father. Because you see, the big problem that is going to come up is that as John appears before the throne of God and sees the uh, four living creatures praising Him, what happens is that, is that they bring forth a scroll, and no one is found worthy to open the scroll. Until the Lamb shows up. Well, the Lamb is clearly different from the one who is sitting on the throne. Right? Obvious. So when you read through chapter 4 and 5, you realize there's, there's two personages here. There's the person who's on the throne being praised as the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And a second personage, the Lamb. So Revelation 4, 8 the phrase Lord God Almighty who is and who was and is and is to come is God the Father. Revelation 11:17. Again, we have a similar kind of situation where there is praise before the throne. The context begins in 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Two personages, the Lord and Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on the thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. Who's God? It's not, they're worshipping the Father here. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. This is a praise to God the Father. So the second time, uh, or, or actually this is the third time in the book, we have Lord God and the phrase who, who is and was and who is to come. It's the Father, not the Son. Revelation 15.3. We find it again. Revelation 15.3. 
Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having this seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. This is the prelude to the bold judgments. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass having harps of God. This is talking about God the Father. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. See, this is there's a distinction here between the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. The God refers to God the Father. Lamb refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Who are they addressing? God the Father, not the Lamb. Next reference is in Revelation 16, verse 7. And I heard from another from the altar. I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God and Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Again, the context shows that they're talking about God the Father, not the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 21:22, we come to the end. Revelation 21:22, but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Two personages again. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So there's a distinction All of this is to show that the Lord God Almighty is distinguished from the Lamb in the context. So let's go back to our passage in Revelation 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Well, isn't that the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we'll see that out that phrase is used three times in Revelation. The second time it's used, it's clearly referring to... uh, the Lord, I mean, to God the Father. The second time it's used, it is referring to God the Father, and the last time it's used, it refers to Jesus Christ. In Revelation 21, 6, I don't think I have that on the overhead. Revelation 21, 6, it refers to God the Father, but, but Revelation 22, 13, it refers to the Son. Alpha and Omega means the first letter in the Greek alphabet is Alpha. Omega is the last letter in the alphabet. So it it indicates eternity. It's an idiom for eternity. That applies to both the Father and the Son. So Revelation uh, 21.6 says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who, who thirsts. And this is said by him who sat on the throne. That is God the Father. So, once again, we see that Alpha and Omega is a term that can apply to either Father or Son. It indicates eternality. So, I am the Alpha and the Omega could be Father or Son. Lord God clearly refers to the Father. Who is and who was and who is to come, again, clearly refers to the Father and concludes with the statement, the Almighty. Again, the Almighty only applies to the Father in the book of Revelation. So, conclusion. Revelation 1, 1 through 8 gives us the introduction. This is a revelation from God the Father. It is given to Jesus Christ, who then reveals it to 
by means of an angel to his servant John. Both the Lord Jesus Christ and the angel are involved in the giving of this revelation. And with that, we conclude the first part of the introduction. And next time we come into the vision, the first vision in the book of Revelation, beginning in verse 9. Frankly, things will move a little faster. The first eight verses are is just a killer to go through both textually and in terms of uh, nomenclature and identification to get all of this down. Things do pick up a little bit with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the clarity of your word. And we look forward with anticipation to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ for us, the church. Father, at this time we pray for those who are here or uncertain of their eternal life and unsure of their future. This is your opportunity to make your future sure and your salvation certain. The offer of salvation is free. There are no strings attached. It is an offer based on the completed work of Christ on the cross, where he died as a substitute for your sins. So that all you need to do to be saved is to simply accept that gift, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in him and him alone for your salvation. This is your opportunity to secure your eternal destiny. Father, we thank you for what we have studied today. May it cause us to have greater appreciation of your plan, your purposes, and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.